Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmaid and on this week's archive edition, our focus turns to the New York-based Nunsuch label. Now, I'm pretty confident that you'll have some of their albums in your collection, which could be anything from Brian Wilson to Wilco to Wanda Jackson. And Nunsuch artists and their music are no stranger to the Barbican stage. But back in 2015, over the weekend of the 17th to the 18th of May, you could have dived into their music and the sound of the label across LSO St. Luke's, Milton Court Concert Hall and the main Barbican stage, experiencing a packed weekend of performance and premieres. In a moment, we're guided through the history of this unique label with its then president, Bob Hurwitz. You could love a lot of different things that weren't strictly one thing or another. Then we speak to composer, pianist and Brian Eno fan, Timo Andres. I'd been absorbed in Eno's music for a few years and a lot of it found its way into Home Stretch, the, the piano concerto on that disc. Then another ensemble which, like much on this label, defies easy categorization, Carolina Chocolate Drops. If you try to restrict none such as, as sort of a classical label or a, this kind of label, it's not a good it's not a good idea because they just they are so far reaching. So first we travel to Kensington, to the London base of this label, to catch up with the then president of None Such Records and now Chairman Emirates, Bob Hurwitz. Let's delve into the fantastic story of this label. Okay, let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved with the label? I was hired in February of 1984 to run Nonsuch. I had run the American operations for nine years for ECM Records through Warner Brothers. Bob Krasnow, who was an a man at Warner's, became the chairman of Electra. He hired me in February. I started in September of that year. And I think that coming out of ECM, it gave me a kind of sense that there was an alternative to a mainstream record company. As you just mentioned, when you came in, you, you wanted to have a fresh start. Well, you know, one of the things... Almost all great record companies were built by enthusiasts, whether it was the Atlantic records of Ahmed Erdogan or the Warner's records of Mo Austin or the Blue Note records of Lyndon Wolf or Deutsche Grammophon or Columbia of Goddard Lieberson and John Hammond. They first got into the business because they loved music and they sought out the artists they loved. We 
With, with some of the artists that you worked with, first of all, um, Steve Reich and John Adams, that initial music that you put out, the world took a little while to catch on to it. You, you were perceiving trends that were going to come. Well, I never thought of them as having anything to do with trends. I just saw them as creative artists who were doing something original, and I loved it. And that, in fact, comes down to the selection process. You know, people think that there's a kind of complicated formula to decide what you want to do. And, and my view has been as simple as possible, which is there's only two criteria. The first criteria is that you love something. And the second criteria is you haven't heard it before. So there are many things that I love, but I've heard before. And those things I'm not interested in recording. And there's many things that I've never heard before, but I don't love. And so those things are not that interesting for me to record. But the things that you hear and you have that kind of immediate visceral reaction, because you because our, our musical memories are probably more sophisticated than our verbal memories, because you kind of remember everything you've ever heard, or at least I tend to remember quite a bit. So you know when you hear something that's completely fresh and original. Again, when you started, were you, were you looking at broadening the genres and, and broadening what, what the label did? Well, I, I don't think that I did very much consciously, although I think after the fact I kind of understood what that was. I grew up in a, in a, a very unusual generation. You know, I went to, to college in the Bay Area in the late 60s and early 70s. There was a radio station there called KSAN. And it was the first time I had ever heard a radio station that in one hour might play Miles Davis or John Coltrane, might play Ravi Shankar, might play The Grateful Dead, might play Aaron Copeland or Igor Stravinsky. And there was this kind of openness about music that existed in that period, which in, in retrospect, I thought would become what the future would be. It really wasn't. But a lot of musicians and people who grew up around the same time, all had that kind of similar experience, like David Harrington, the Kronos Quartet, or John Adams, who were both within a couple years of my age. Um, John Zorn was another person where all of a sudden there was this kind of sense of democracy in music. And even my own family background, I was a classically trained pianist, so I had grown up with this kind of world where you could love a lot of different things that weren't strictly one thing or another. That was the person who I was when I took on this job. And I remembered the first big release we ever had was Steve Reich, Philip Glass, and John Adams in September 1985. None such before that never did anything like it. In fact, probably know historically of tension between what was called the Uptown School, which was the school of Elliot Carter and Charles Warren and Milton Babbitt, and a kind of European version of of modern classical music and then the downtown part of the world which was laurie anderson and steve reich and phil glass and people who were kind of breaking with those kinds of traditions so i walked in and i kind of had an interest in the uptown school but i had a deeper passion for the downtown school <laughs> and so i the first thing is i jumped off that cliff Uh, 
And then the second cliff I jumped off was the cliff of Caetano Veloso, which was, for me, in a way, the key moment that I can do that, which was, you know, Caetano, his music was as impressive to me as any classical composer. Just because someone was writing new music didn't make that better. It just was that I consciously recognized that we had all lived in this hierarchy of music, which said one kind is superior to another, and somehow classical music was superior to modern music, and jazz was superior to popular kinds of music. And, and I still had an interest in, in pop, but I wasn't moving quite in that direction. Then I brought in a colleague named David Byther, who brought in Emmylou Harris to the label, who was our first kind of pop signing. And I think it just kind of expanded from that point forward. David liked to say that we had sort of constructed a house, and he was just there to add another room. And so we've been building on that house for a long time. When, when you, you have these artists, a lot that you mentioned already, you, you stick with them and you, you're, you're, you're labeled for a long, long part of their career. Right. Well, obviously, the impression that long-term relationships uh, had were something that I, that I thought made a lot of sense, that what was a thrilling thing was to hear the next John Adams piece or to hear the next ideas that David Harrington had for Kronos. And, and I think that, in a funny way, it's helped us as a business because what has happened is that a large number of our artists have ended up, sometimes they could go along for five years and then they hit a moment and the audience all of a sudden has a kind of intersection with them. And at that point, all of a sudden they expand their audience, which is good for them, it's good for us. But more importantly, I mean, if you look at literature or you look at dance or you look at painting or you look at filmmaking, the people who I'm interested in, I have a lifetime interest. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson or the Cone Brothers or Spike Lee or John Updike or a wide range of authors or George Balanchine. You could go through a long list. If I had wings, I'd know stuff. I'd fly the river. To the one I love Oh, fare thee well My honey Fare thee well Certainly, if I look at people who, let's say, I've worked with for a long time like Caetano and John and Steve, just to use three examples, the, the arc of their career has been kind of something incredible. And in a way, they're no different than artists from two centuries ago. They have uh, an enormous focus about how they create new work, um, and they take every new thing really, really seriously. And what happens on the other side is the world begins to catch up with them. A lot of people who, when Steve Reich's music first appeared, didn't really understand what it was because it was so radical at that point. And then slowly over the years, even from the, from the time before I, even I started working with him, and I started working with him in 1976 when I was at ECM, you know, over that period of time, he's gone from being someone on the margins to one of the most beloved composers in the world. John Adams, you know, kind of started on the margins. Now he's 
his music is performed as much as any living composer on the planet by orchestras. And by by staying that long road, in a way, we're kind of acting no differently than any other editor has acted in any other different kinds of, 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 of art or curator through the years. My sense is that those artists who have that kind of originality, and, and I have to use the word beauty in what they do, are people who will start at one point and they will just continue to grow until the point they stop growing or they stop creating. Um, I still haven't seen one of the people who I work with who's reached that point yet. This seems a good point to dive into the concerts that are planned at the Barbican. You obviously had an awful lot of musicians to choose from, an awful lot of music to choose from. Where did you start? What were your sort of intentions? Well, Ashley Brenna over at the Barbican started this whole thing about three years ago. I've been to four of the marathons that the Barbican has done over the years. Just had a great time. I always thought they were great. And then when this year came around, we said, maybe this is the time to do it. And so we started by talking about the weekend. And then the thing expanded into a much larger thing, um, which, again, is something we're very delighted about. The one thing which is, of course, significant about this is that, whereas I honestly don't believe there are a lot of record companies that have been able to be involved at a high level in so many different genres of music. The one thing that has happened is the Barbican is one of a number of organizations around the world whose programming has been similar to what we do historically. Every year there might be five or ten different Nonesuch artists passing through. The interest of the Barbican, at least from my perception, was their, their way of thinking about this kind of genreless world was very similar to ours, so it seemed like a very natural fit. Um, I don't think there's any program that's coming up that the Barbican might not have done on its own <laughs> if there wasn't a festival. One sort of interesting, sort of more modern composer is um, Johnny Greenwood from, from Radiohead. Do, do you do you feel like he's on the same path as some of these composers? Oh, he's come from a, you, a completely different idea. I mean, in the sense that he's, and again, I say this without any question that Radiohead falls into that idea of a band that, besides all of its massive success, has always been a very serious band, and he's always been a very big part of it. Unlike a lot of musicians who've been in serious bands, he had the great advantage of having a real compositional uh, education. The place where our worlds converged was in Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. We had already started working with Paul, who was, if he was a musician, we would have wanted to sign him to Nunsuch. Through that experience where he wrote this phenomenal score, other projects have, have come up, and you know, including another couple of Paul movies and some of his own compositions. And so it's it's a different path. It's a unique path. You know, we're honored to be able to, to work with him and to be able to represent some of these very special recordings. I think one of the other highlights of, of the weekend uh, of, the, of the festival is this um, new, new composition um, which is created to try and bring a lot of the different vocalists or different performers together. Well, the folk concert, the 
relationship between folk music and classical music is is certainly not a recent invention. Um, for anybody who really wants to hear the greatest talk about this, there is a Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concert where he talked about folk music and classical music, which is just one of the most stunning programs I've ever seen, which a kind of an astonishing story about the relationship of language, folk music, and classical music. Um, and it had a deep impact on me. As I went to walk in on a fine summer's morning The birds in the bushes did whistle and sing The lads and the lassies in couples were sporting And then back to the factory their work to begin Now that's what you call a pretty tune, isn't it? Sort of like a folk song Perhaps it makes you think of a song you may have learned in school or at camp. Somehow it has that folk song flavor, like something a lot of people might sing together in a bus or on a hike or around the campfire. And there have been, at Nonesuch, a number of recordings we've made where there was this kind of deep connection between folk music and classical music. For example, we made a recording of Stravinsky's Les Nos with the Pokrovsky Ensemble. Um, and the reason that I had wanted to do it was that Pokrovsky's singers were classically trained singers who sang folk music in a kind of authentic style. Whereas all the recordings of Les Nos had always been sung by classical musicians singing in a classical style. It all of a sudden completely transformed that incredible piece of music. My my thought in coming up with this idea was to kind of turn the tables. And by turning the tables, it was because there is, with Kronos, they've done a lot of folk music from musicians from all over the world that has been quite beautiful, but they've never really done it on this kind of extended basis with, with singers in their own native language. So my thought was that writing, having pieces that are either written or arranged on a kind of rigorous level that would have the singers sing in their own voice. But these are four exceptional singers. Rhiannon Giddens, Natalie Merchant, Sam Amadon, and Olivia Cheney, who come from four completely different places. You can't you can't really say one is like the other. There's places where they kind of commingle. They all have a different take of what it is to be a musician, but what they have in common, their common ancestry is folk music. That's where it came. Without it either being too lightweight for classical music or too heavy for pop music, it's about just writing great arrangements and hopefully creating some great music.
Another landmark musical moment in the history of the label was when it released Polish composer Goretzky's Symphony No. 3 back in 1992. I had heard a very old recording of the Third Symphony and years ago, the London Sinfonietta did its own kind of weekend, and I heard the piece live for the very first time. And the impact of it was just much greater than any recording could could ever, ever have. I mean, and in fact, that's one of the things about recording is that sometimes you just have to hear the piece live. Hopefully, uh, there's a wonderful soprano named Jessica Rivera who's going to be singing it. The, the single lesson I've learned more than anything else is that the the source of everything is talent um, and that even though so many things have changed because of all the incredible changes in technology and the way we sell records and all the rest that that the talented artist is still and the original and unique uh, artist is still at the center of what we do and certainly the most thrilling thing for me and for my colleagues are those moments when we suddenly find that person we've never heard before and they kind of light everything up and 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 again it's it's a kind of intuitive thing happens you know it when you hear it you can't explain why it's there i could kind of explain why it's there but you really can't and i also fully accept the fact having said that that there's a thing in called taste and nobody's taste is universal and it's a big world out there and there's going to be a lot of different kinds of perspectives and tastes of people the loyalty of people who are i i would have to say the audience of none such an audience which we have never polled for their opinions Mm -hmm. an audience that we have never tried to find out who they are we have done everything wrong in terms of modern research and yet they have been people who have continued to support what we do and t- tended to love many of the same things that we love. Just as when I was just a music fan in my teens and early 20s, what John Hammond or Goddard Lieberson was doing at Columbia Records, I was one of those people who tended to love what they loved. And I think that element is is becoming rarer today in 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 the world, but... I am fully confident that that is going to persist uh, long after we've stopped doing what we're doing at Nonsuch. Well, I'll just finish by saying congratulations. It's an incredible achievement and, and long may the label continue. Thank you. Thanks to Bob for speaking to us. After the interview, he passed us phone numbers for two of the talented artists taking part in the festival so we can get the perspective of those who have been invited to be part of its roster. First, I spoke to Timo Andres, a pianist and composer who accidentally became part of a previous weekend festival of music, Nico Muley's A Scream and an Outrage. This seemed a good place to start our conversation before moving on to his part in this Nonesuch weekend. Well, you know, I, I was kind of there by surprise last spring. It was tremendously exciting and, and rather scary. And uh, now that I, now that I'm there in a more official capacity, uh, have, having more time to prepare is certainly good. This is part of 
Explorations, the sound of Nunsuch Records. It's a big question, but personally, what do you consider to be the sound of the label? You know, it's it's more how I think of a person's musical taste. It's like, it's the kind of wide-ranging taste that you would want a person to have, you know? I just, I, re- I remember one, um, sort of when I was back in college, before I really was aware of record labels and sort of what the different ones were like. And I found my way to the Nonsuch website. And that was sort of the first time when I realized that they were something special. And I was looking at the artist list and I was like, oh, they, that person records for Nonsuch? It's like Laurie Anderson and, and uh, like John Adams and all these people who I was obsessed with. And then it was it was sort of that moment of looking through the website in college that I was like, oh, none such records. Like, I should really uh, <laughs> I should really get on board with them if I can. It was quite different for the, the two albums I've done because the first one, Shy and Mighty, was totally my project. That was, um, and they just released that. And then the next record, Home Stretch, did require a great deal more sort of planning, and was it was kind of a three-year process where it started out as a live concert that was a a bunch of pieces that were written to go together and then (laughs) most of that time we actually spent like just raising all the money to do the recording that recording was uh, a much more sort of official (laughs) by the books operation where you know we hired a real producer and real engineers and were in the studio for a couple of days and um and so so that was much more sort of uh planned um and and bob was a big part of that Kind of one of the things that I love about a lot of the music that I play and 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 work in is the sort of chamber music acoustic aspect of like all you have to do is get you know four or five people in a room and and give them some instruments and that's it there's no fancy stuff it's like what what you see is what you get you just put some mics in front of them and and you all play together and that's like that's the piece and it's yeah it's it's kind of one of the best things about doing chamber music and small groups and things like that and yeah it is it's becoming 
it's become quite difficult to do these large scale projects just because you need you need to find the money and and it usually comes from yeah i mean nonsuch is one of the one of the few places that can can put sort of institutional faith and weight behind that Tim, I wanted to talk about possibly two different disciplines. How do you see yourself as a performer um, or composer? Are they two different sides of you or are they intertwined in some way? I've always seen them as very much related. And I I think if I were to uh, separate them out and or or if I were even to like decide to focus on one or the other, uh, that I would (laughs) almost lose interest in like being a musician. I don't know. It's, it seems to me that I, I'm always most inspired to do one thing by doing the other thing that like working on a piece of music from a performing standpoint and really getting into the details and, and uh, working up an interpretation gives me compositional ideas and also vice versa, that the coming up with a structure for a piece, you know, some kind of new way of layering ideas or sounds will give me interpretational ideas. That's as true for old music as it is for contemporary music, um, which is kind of why I like to do as much of both as possible and, and uh, kind of throw them together all, all in the same pot. That's sort of the core of, of where I am musically is uh, the, this this kind of um, stew of old things and new things. So both both as a performer and a composer, that's uh, that's kind of what keeps me going. Speaking of old things and new things, Timo, could you tell me the story behind Paraphrase on Themes of Brian Eno? The the genesis of that piece was kind of, you know, I'd, I'd been absorbed in Eno's music for a few years, and a lot of it found its way into Home Stretch, the, the piano concerto on that disc. And I wanted to kind of... For the for this concert, I wanted to do something that engaged with his actual music a little bit more explicitly, and I got the idea of doing a kind of concert paraphrase in the 19th century sense of like tunes from a well-known opera, like integrate them all into a, a like Fantasia, where it's kind of these familiar tunes are stitched together by some sort of different logic than they would be in the original context. So it was partially that I I just really loved this music and partially as it's almost like a compositional exercise of like 
here's this pre-existing material, you know, make it fit into a new structure that I would come up with myself. And also the other sort of exercise uh, aspect of it is here's all this music that was composed in a recording studio by, you know, layering textures and effects and electronic instruments and make it sound like something for an acoustic chamber orchestra. Having someone else make the material for me and not worrying about that aspect and only worrying about part where I make it sound as, uh, as lively and, and beautiful in this orchestration as I could. mentioned already your debut album Shy and Mighty and you'll be performing from that. Alongside that though you'll be performing Steve Reich's Piano Phase and John Adams' Hallelujah Junction. That's quite an impressive range of or journey in music. It is and it's kind of a dream because those two pieces, Steve's and John's pieces, were kind of the stuff that originally spurred me to do an album of two piano music where these kind of great sort of minimal um, expanses and using two pianos, it kind of, it's, it's kind of the, the best of two worlds for me in that, you know, piano is very much my home turf and it's like the instrument I feel most comfortable writing for and that I know by far the most thoroughly. You can also have the aspect of chamber music when you have more than one musician and that allows you to do a whole host of other sort of um, musical and dramatic things. And those two pieces of Hallelujah Junction and, and Piano Phase were kind of two pieces that got me thinking about musical structure in a, in a sort of dramatic way, as I guess more as architecture and process interaction more than just like containers that you put material in. So so that was very much what Shine Mighty was sort of about, was almost like a, a personal compositional notebook of, of new structural ideas to try out. So in a way, it's very intimidating for me to be playing it alongside these two pieces that it's so heavily embedded to, and I hope, uh, I hope it doesn't suffer by, by being alongside them, I'm a little bit worried.
I caught Timo and David's duo performance and it was electrifying to see them hold this conversation between the two pianos, creating a new mighty combined piano sound. Next to the Sunday of the Nunsuch celebrations, featuring an exclusive commission with the Kronos Quartet alongside Natalie Merchant, Sam Amadon, Olivia Cheney, Ila O'Leonard and one Rihanna Giddens, a founding member of Carolina Chocolate Drops. She spoke to me on the phone about her place on this label, folk music and her excitement of being part of this new collaboration. So to begin, what do you consider the sound of the label and what's your place within that? Well, I, you know, I kind of what I felt from the beginning is that really what we bring, I, I think, really fits in. Um, like maybe not at first blush, if you if you try to restrict none such as, as sort of a classical label or a, this kind of label, you know, I think it's 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 not a good it's not a good idea because they just they are so far reaching, and a lot of what they you know do for me is very progressive and it's very. Um, experimental and it's it's flirting with you know different ideas of what of what different or what you consider this kind of music or that kind of music and and I feel like that's what we do you know it, and so it, it always felt like a good home to us even though I, you know when we first you know first thinking about it, it was like oh my gosh really and then I was like well yeah upon upon further reflection you know um just just the idea of music just sort of being good music and and they just champion that and support that and help develop that. Well, he was scheming, I was beaming, and his beamer just beaming. Can't believe that I call my man cheating. So I found another way to make him pay for it all. So I went to Neiman Marcus on a shopping spree. And on the way, I grabbed Soleil and Mia. And as the cash box rang, I threw everything away. Um, I, I think what our, our willingness play around with the the forms that we were championing, you know, our willingness to, you know, take a hip hop song and, and work it into our repertoire in a way that worked and, and that worked with our music, um, I think um, is one of the one of the reasons why they were interested in us and that we weren't just interested in sort of just doing one type of thing, that we really wanted to explore, you know, what we could do with our instruments and our knowledge of the past in order to sort of push things into, you know, today. I, th- I think anyway, that's that was uh, what made us appealing to them. You know, we're we're kind of a unique band in that it's not like one person per instrument. You know, it's pretty much we have this sort of group of instruments and we're sort of switching them around. And then there's some sort of generalities, like I play a lot of fiddle and you know, um, that kind of thing. But we, we look for whatever instrumentation provides the feel. So I kind of feel like the feel comes first. And and, and our feel for that, pardon the repetition of that word, um, I think comes from doing a lot of listening. And, and I think, you know, trying to find that feel, what is it that makes, you know, this kind of music, the early African-American string band music, and, you know, all of that, what makes that, you know, that, what, what, what is that feel and I think that comes first for us. And then we find the, the orchestration that supports that the most. So, you know, maybe it's me on fiddle, but maybe it's me on banjo, or maybe it's me not playing anything, you know, or I'm playing kazoo, you know. So it just, we kind of, we start there and, and the instruments are really secondary um, to the feel that we're trying to achieve. And as you mentioned there, you're looking very much at the history and the context of the songs, bringing them up to date and, and alive. Is that hard to do? I mean, I think that 
you ground yourself in the history and you learn as much as you can. And then you have to use that as a springboard. You know, you have to, it's, it, you know, absolutely right. We do not want them to be museum pieces because, I mean, frankly, some of the stuff is recorded. You can go listen to the recording if you want to hear exactly how it was performed. You can listen to Joe Thompson. You can listen to, you know, and some of the things that we're completely having to imagine because there were no recordings, we have a little bit more freedom, but like, it shouldn't really make any difference. It's, it's our interpretation of them. And I feel like the more that we understand, you know, about where they come from, the more freedom we have in interpreting them, how we can interpret them. You know, it, it gives us, you know, sort of like, well, look, you know, we, we've actually learned about this and we know a lot about it. So now let's see how it is filtered through our 21st century experiences and our, you know, our, our, who we are, you know, we can't pretend to be um, a poor sharecropper from 1925, you know, because that, that does nobody any, any justice, you know, it's, it's an insult to the sharecropper from 1925 and an insult to us because our experiences are just as valid. They're just different. So, you know, I think that's, that's the other half of it. Like the first half is like, you know, really being grounded in this, in the history and the culture and the context. And then the other part is letting it free, you know, and figuring out, you know, there are some, some things, maybe there are some language that does need to be updated. Maybe there's some language that doesn't. People, people will understand more than I think we give them credit for, you know, just in general, people get it. You know, they they get it's an old song, they understand the sentiment, and if, if it's a well-written song, then it's, it's going to come through no matter what the language is, you know? That's that's kind of, the, I think, the two, the two main prongs of our approach. And how do you value success? Is it about bringing these songs to life on stage? Well, I mean, success, it's such a broad term, you know? I mean, and it means different things to different people. I mean, success for me is I'm doing something that I love. I can keep the lights on, <laughs> you know, and buy diapers for my baby. And that's that's one part of success. The other part, I mean, that's kind of like, just regular life success. And then there's, there's artistic success, which, you know, to me is really represented by the live show and going to a show, you know, performing something and then having somebody come up to me afterwards and say they were particularly touched or took them out of their day or having a rotten day. And then they came to the show and they felt like a new person. I mean, those kind of things, I mean, that's why you become a musician, really. I can't speak for everyone, but that's one of the reasons I love doing it is, is that connection with people. You know, I feel like that's, you know, it's really our job is to is to help people, you know, have these emotional connections to things. I've written a couple of songs based on slave narratives and that people are really connecting to those songs. And it's just like it's another way of representing a people, you know, and an experience that, you know, you don't have to go to a, a class and read about these narratives. And even though they should be more represented in our educational system than they are, but that's another topic. You know, it's it's a way for me to kind of sneak in, you know, here's the story that's amazing and these people can just take it in because it's a song and they can emotionally connect to it even before they connect to it intellectually. And I feel like that's where the arts comes in is it really gets, it kind of, it's, it's a direct string from heart to heart, you know, and it gets people emotionally engaged. And then maybe that person who heard that song will want to go read that book that I that I read that story out of. And then maybe they'll have more of a, an understanding about that time period. And, and who knows, 
that ha- that's out of my control, but, you know, to know that that touched somebody, you know, really means a lot. To know that a Joe Thompson tune, we we're still playing, you know, that, that makes people dance. You know, that, that to me is success. Go to sleepy little baby, go to sleepy little baby, lay your head upon my breast, not the time to leave the nest, little cuckoo, little baby. And finally, have the audiences been kind to you in London? Um, we've, we've always enjoyed coming to, to England in general and in London specifically. Our shows have always been, like, I think from the very beginning, just very enthusiastically attended. And, you know, we, we seem to found our audience pretty quickly. And uh, that, that just is great. We, we love coming over. I mean, I just am absolutely looking forward to that. I mean, it's, I'm so honored to be a part of this concert. And, um, you know, I, I started off as a vocalist and then kind of took a short detour into fiddle and banjo music and, and, you know, hadn't been doing a whole lot of singing um, until recently. And it's just great to just be in that mix and, you know, to be working with the Kronos Quartet. And I, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of really great collaborative stuff going on between the folk and the classical world. I mean, I just got finished with, well, I actually have my last, the last one tonight, um, a collaboration with the NC Symphony doing orchestrations of turn of the century um, African-American Broadway composers um, in a show where the chocolate drops are doing some minstrel songs. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, of this collaborative nature in the air and none such of course is just the perfect place for that because they have all of these different people on their label. And so, I just, I'm very excited about it. I just think this is the future. You know, we, we've gotten so stratified with our genres. You know, I like this kind of music. I like this kind of music. And, and it's just not, you know, some of the most exciting and creative parts of our music history is when those genres were less rigid. And I think we're getting there again, where it's just like, is it good? You know, is it exciting? Is it well done? Well, then that's what matters. And, you know, the training or, or whatever, you know, it just should just be, it should just be another tool in the, in the toolbox to get to that performance that will touch people. And so I'm just, I'm really, really excited about what's going on right now. And, and this concert in particular is just going to be great. Other highlights of the festival included performances from Johnny Greenwood and that career-defining work from Goretzky, Symphony Number no. 3, which we talked about earlier. You could also have heard the ever-engaging and growing catalogue of work from contemporary composers such as John Adams, Steve Reich and Philip Glass. And beyond that weekend, there was more that year from Devandra Banhart, Rockier Torore, Jeremy Denk and Emmalou Harris. If nothing else, I hope this podcast will have you reaching to your shelves to listen to some of those landmark albums the label has been responsible for in their ever-distinctive sleeves. I'm Benesh Maid. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. Here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAST, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.